Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, joining you again this evening for another episode of Going Deeper Online. As always, I'm joined by some of my favorite people in the world and uh, some of my favorite people to talk about the Bible with. We have Dr. Miranda Webster up there. And usually I say something goofy like from the great state of Texas or something like that. But actually, we got some big news. Uh, You are going to be soon moving to Ohio. And uh, you've taken an appointment uh, at the university there at Cedarville. And so congratulations to you. And, and in the future, we'll introduce you as from Ohio. Is okay, that right? Or perfect. no, or still from Texas. I guess you're always from Texas, right? <laughs> Once a Texan, always a Texan, yeah. right? Anyway, congratulations to you. Uh, also, we have uh, Crystal Humphrey there from Calgary, Alberta. We have Pastor Jesse Stewart, who's about to be a new dad. So uh, if, if he runs out of the picture at any point, uh, looking like his house is on fire, uh, there's probably a real good reason for that. So we're cheering for you down there in Glendale, Kentucky. And then my good buddy, Pastor Stephen Bray from Newfoundland. Long may your big jib draw, buddy. Good okay. to see you. Hey, by the way, I looked that up on the internet. <laughs> and you probably had to practice that and you should continue to practice. I did. And I wanted to be sure it didn't mean anything bad. Uh, so apparently it's just newfie for hello. Yeah. Well, yeah. again, it's about how the boat goes through the water and, and uh, how it's drawn through your, your your sail that draws you through the water. Well, when you explain it, it kind of takes the magic out of it. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it. Long may your big jib draw. Good there to see you, go. brother. Amen. Great. Thanks for being here. I appreciate all you joining me again tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for me. Good to be here. All right. Well, in just a moment, we're going to open our time in prayer. Uh, But before we do, I just want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, I want to let our listeners know that this will be our last going deeper uh, for a little while. We we started this, uh, basically, it was a sort of COVID-19 invention. Uh, They say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, with COVID happening, none of our groups could meet, none of our Bible studies could meet. And also, uh, pastors and, and teachers were all frazzled. We were all doing a thousand things we hadn't done before, learning how to use weird products and internet technologies and whatnot. So it just seemed like a good idea at, at the time in the sense of uh, 
it was basically a pastoral efficiency because now we can have a pretty complicated and in-depth and useful conversation about the Bible, but each of us only has to research one, one fifth or one sixth of, of what we're going to be talking about, which saves each of us time. Our people are all able to engage from the safety of their homes uh, without uh, exposing themselves uh, to, to infection. So it, it seemed to make a lot of sense. Now that churches are, are opening up and groups are able to meet again, obviously it, it makes sense to, uh, to reevaluate. One of the things that we've learned over the course of doing this is that the vast majority of people who engage with this program engage with it as a podcast. And uh, so they can listen while they walk their dog or wash the dishes or whatever, drive to work if they're still working. So uh, we're going to put it to bed for a couple months anyway over the summer and then uh, reevaluate, retweak, uh, tweak the format. And we will come back to it, uh, God willing, obviously, in the fall. So watch for that. We'll let you know. Uh, you can find news about that on the end of the word. Facebook page. All right. The other thing I wanted to let you know uh, is that, uh, as I mentioned last week, for all of June and July, uh, absolutely every every gift that comes in either through the End of the Word app or through the End of the Word uh, webpage is going to go directly to help uh, struggling rural pastors in South Africa. Uh, as we mentioned last week, you know, for most of us, COVID nineteen has been uh, pastorally challenging, professionally challenging. Uh, personally inconvenient, but uh, you know the government in both of our countries has been very kind, very generous to us. There's great stability there. We we rejoice in that. And so, for most of us, other than those who obviously who, who contracted the infection of the frontline workers, uh, it, it it's been a fairly mild catastrophe. But for our brothers and sisters in the developing world, it's been an actual catastrophe. Um, and uh, so, ABWE has set up an account. Uh, I am personal friends with the fellow on the ground who administers the account. So I can tell you, I trust ABWE and I trust Pastor Shadrach. This money is going to get into the hands of frontline workers, pastoral ministry workers in South Africa who who literally are living hand to month right now as a result of this pandemic. So uh, absolutely every cent that comes in through the app or through the website is going to go uh, to those folks. It's such a worthy cause. If you're able to give, please do. That's for all of June and July. All right. With all that housekeeping out of the way, Pastor Stephen, what do you add? Did I get that one right? You did. What do you add, brother? Can you uh, can you open our time in prayer? Absolutely, everybody. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gift of laughter and friendly banter. Mm. And Lord, now as we once again uh, are thankful to you as our Creator God, and when we have seen things created by humans, including this type of technology, may we always be reminded that is simply us imitating you. Um, because we're made in your image. Lord, I just pray that you would be glorified in our discussion tonight. We want to make much of your word. We want to show how it is relevant in 2020. We want to show how it means something to us personally, how you have changed our lives, inviting all of those listening to be aware and made more deeply aware of how the sufficient word of God can indeed instruct us and help us and guide us, give us peace Lord, uh, you are an, an amazingly patient with us as we wait answers from you. But you're also the God who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus Christ lived for us the life we could never live, died the death we deserve, and rose victorious over the death, sin, and Satan that we could never conquer. And so, Lord, now may we just do what are, we have been created to do, and that is to enjoy you and glorify you now in talking about your word. I pray, Father, that all of our listeners will know 
that we only are as good as we point and submit to the word of God and give you glory. So Lord, may they find their hope, their peace, their confidence in you. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are on this screen here with me. Lord, I am so thankful for the fact that I get reminded every day that when I have those low moments like Elijah did and he ran off to that cave, that you were so gracious to remind him that you had 7,000 prophets that had not bent the knee of Baal. And so, Lord, may we be aware as we struggle with all the things that are coronavirus, economic upheaval, racial tension, culture turning against you, that you are still on your throne, you are still God and God alone, and you have men and women around this world who love you and pray to you and read your word and want to go deeper into the word. So, Lord, give us this tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right. Well, uh, normally here on Going Deeper, we begin with book introductions, but we didn't actually encounter any new books or letters this week, which is a bit unusual. Uh, we're in the middle of some longer uh, books and letters in the Bible. And uh, so we'll skip that and we'll go right into a very important and timely discussion. This is a discussion actually that we had intended to have last week, or we did have last week, uh, but then the, our, we had internet problems, as you probably know, and uh, the internet uh, ate the last half of our, our conversation. And uh, so we, I, actually Miranda and I kind of mourned that. I, I actually, I, I thought it was one of the most useful and, and, and helpful conversations I've been a part of. And so I actually took a lot of uh, what, what you had said and uh, turned it into um, a little podcast special episode, an excursus episode that we did called Violent Prayers. Um, Violent Prayers, Peaceful Process, I think we called it. But anyway, uh, that only covered really one aspect of the conversation. And then as Providence would have it in God's kindness and grace, uh, there was a tremendous opportunity to have that conversation out of this week's readings. In fact, I would argue a more natural uh, invitation to have that conversation. So uh, we're thankful we get to we get to have it again. Uh, it's a conversation obviously about justice, uh, which has been at the forefront of all of our minds, uh, as Pastor Stephen indicated in his prayer, for I, I suppose we would say now two weeks. Um, so I wanna base this conversation out of a couple passages that we read in the last couple of days. First one is Psalm 103 verse six. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So God is committed to righteousness and justice uh, specifically for those who are oppressed. Now in uh, commenting on another passage, W.S. Plumer says this, the highest worship is imitation. The Lord is good, let us be good. The Lord is merciful, let us be merciful. He is true, let us be faithful, closed. So if that's true with respect to goodness, mercy, faithfulness, then I imagine it is also true with respect to justice. If God pursues justice, then if we're his people, if we're his worshipers, we need to pursue justice. And in fact, if Plumer is right, then the pursuit of worship, uh, the pursuit of justice is actually an act of worship. But that of course raises the question of how. Uh, obviously we wanna do God things God way, God's ways, right? We wanna do Jesus things, Jesus way. And, and so I think that has actually been, been the big conversation or maybe I'm not sure which side of this conversation is bigger, but it's been an equally big conversation in the Christian church over the last couple of weeks is how do we pursue justice? Um, and, and so there's a passage this week that can help us with that as well. Interestingly, 
it's the same passage I intended to use last week. Although last week, it was the New Testament quotation of this passage. So in Matthew 12, the, uh, the apostle, Matthew, uses Isaiah 42, 1-4 to to describe Jesus' approach to pursuing justice, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. I intended to use that as a way of saying, we've got to pursue justice the Jesus way. This week, we run right into that original citation. So let me read it to you. Isaiah 42, 1-4. Behold my servant whom I have whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So Miranda, I feel like that passage rebukes all of us uh, on all sides of, of this issue uh, with respect to our approach to pursuing justice. So many of us are not pursuing justice because we don't need it. We already have it, right? We're, we're part of the majority culture. We, we're enjoying tremendous privilege. So we're not motivated to pursue it. And we can even pretend that it's not needed uh, because it doesn't affect us. It's not part of our story. But then others of us out there are pursuing justice, but perhaps not in a very Jesus-y way, if I can use that expression. So thread the needle for us uh, on this. What does it look like for us to pursue justice in a Christ-like fashion? Get us, get us started on that. Sure. I love these passages, and I think that they are so helpful, especially when we look at um, Psalm, just both of them really, like they teach us different aspects, I would say, about God's character and God's love of justice. And so I think it's interesting in Psalm 103.6 that we see righteousness and justice paired together, that they meet together. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Psalm 85.10, where it says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Yeah. And so it's almost like this idea of righteousness and justice are coming together perfectly through God being executed perfectly. Um, so he's a hundred percent, God is a hundred percent righteous and he's a hundred percent just. And so yeah. he's perfectly executing justice and that he is ultimately acting on behalf of the oppressed. So that's such a great reminder as we think of that for our own application. But then even like looking at Isaiah 42, one through four, um, we see that this broken read, right? That Christ acts on behalf of the oppressed, but in some ways Christ himself was oppressed. Um, he became poor so that we could become rich. He um, gives up heaven so that we can go into heaven, right? So we see that Christ is perfectly righteous and just, um, especially when we look to the cross, right? We see this idea of righteousness and justice perfectly in the cross. And um, through Christ, right? Through Christ, we're able to be like him because of what he's done on the cross. So just thinking through that, like through Christ's death on the cross, Christ was oppressed and marginalized. He was marginalized by the religious leaders he was marginalized by uh, the governing authorities. He was isolated from his friends and his family. And ultimately, we see this division between the Trinity of God, the Father and the Son. And so it's such a good reminder of we 
when we pursue social justice, if we pursue justice, we do it almost, oh, well, and entirely in response because of what Christ has done for us. And we're only enabled to um, imitate, just like Plumer's quote, because of what he's done for us by making us possible. So I, I just kind of, I had so much, so many thoughts on this, but um, as we live in a fallen world, we should seek justice, um, as we've kind of already said, and that Christian Christians must recognize that the means of justice are going to be accomplished and they're different than the means that the world would say. So yeah. often kind of in the conversation that I've heard um, in response to George Floyd and other things, it's uh, let's defund the police or mm -hmm. if we have enough education, then society will change and reform. Or if we just pour the money into the uh, poverty uh, stricken neighborhoods, then, you know, that change will happen. And and we as believers, that's just contrastingly different. The way we approach it is that it isn't, salvation doesn't come through education. Salvation doesn't come through money um, or even uh making the reforms that are needed in society. It comes through gospel transformation whenever our hearts are changed. But that isn't to say that there isn't um, a need for Christians to pursue justice. Um, we respond uh, because again, thinking of how Christ, uh, what he has done for us, we should care about social justice now. Mm -hmm. and, and we even see this in the Lord's prayer of mm -hmm. thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this idea of the kingdom coming down, um, and we know that there's this now not yet perspective with social justice. Going back to Isaiah, we see that Christ will establish justice. We see this three times in the passage of he will establish it. He will um, do it faithfully. He will bring it And that's such about. an active term, right? Absolutely. Establish it. He doesn't just you know wear a shirt or or repeat a slogan like it, that's a, that's an active term. Uh, establish, he'll imprint. He will uh, make to stand, set up. Like those are all. However you want to translate that, that's those are those are active words. And so, any any Christian who's inclined to think, well, as long as my mindset is correct, I'm not part of the problem. Uh, that's not enough, right? Now, these are active terms. No, and I would even say further, like so. That's the the coming kingdom yeah. of Christ where he's going to establish it. But there is a responsibility now for mm -hmm. believers to do, to bring the kingdom about now. And I think just um, some practical ways as I'm listening to on this, people of color who have been um, aware and experiencing uh, oppression, they there is a response. And you even talked about it, Paul, about this repentance and being, um, I think our hearts should be humbled. And as we're believers, it's not that we repent once. It's this ongoing repenting. I keep repenting. I keep mm -hmm. believing. And we um, ask God to reveal any areas of hatred or favoritism. If we favor the rich over the poor, we're right. rebuked by that. And James, right? Or even sins of omission, the things, the good things that we could have done yeah. that we refuse to do either in silence or neglect or ignoring and denying true oppression because we feel uncomfortable or we make um, people of color uh, validate their experience um, mm. or even looking at ways in which we may have 
maybe subconsciously or even consciously participated in maybe or been complicit in acts of oppression. And just ultimately looking at the ways in which the past, like believers have used the scripture and distorted it to uh, nullify the, the Imago Dei and all people, that's something we need to acknowledge, repent of, and call out. Like that is wrong when we see Southern, um, in the United States specifically, pastors who twist and distort the scriptures, or even when we went to the Museum of the Bible, we saw a Bible that was called the Slave Bible, and they actually took out scriptures that oh, had to wow. deal with slavery, or even um, like in Galatians, where it talks we're neither free nor um, slave, we're one in Christ. So acknowledging those things, repenting of them, and then working against that. Yeah. And I and I, I'm almost done, I promise. But we also like listen, need to listen to other people um, and resist their urge to defend ourselves because, yeah. or to explain and say, you know, oh, I'm not a racist and, and feel like we have to always put that out uh, about ourselves and protect ourselves. When most people, most conversations that I have with people of color and just listening to them, listening to their experience. And I... I think I have done all the wrong things. So part of this is just um, learning from that too. Of It is natural for us to want to defend ourselves and to say, no, I'm not a racist. I promise. I love uh, people of color. Um, and most of the time, they, they people know um, about that. And, and instead of defending, just let people talk to you and just see them as a person and just also learning um, oh, I, another thing, just to weep with them as they're experiencing this, weep with them, mourn with them, and then learn and educate ourselves because a lot of the things that are happening or had, have happened in the past, both in Canada and the United States, they're not talked about in our schools. They're not talked about through our education system. So we have to go and educate ourselves on a lot of the past or they're, um, we're rewriting the history so that it looks a different way. And then ultimately we partner, we promote, and we share the privilege that we have. And we've seen a lot of this kind of starting to bloom up. And it's it's a beautiful thing um, to see that. And hopefully it'll continue beyond just what seems really trending right now, both in culture, but it will actually just begin to continue to grow in the church. Sorry, that's a lot. I, I said a lot there. Well, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. Uh, I, one of the questions that I get a lot is, um, you know, how should a Christian think about these protests? Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, if you're a Christian and you're in one of these cities where the protests are happening, <laughs> do you, can a Christian protest? Um, can a Christian uh, wear a shirt that says, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter? These are some of the real questions that our young people are asking. Uh, I throw it out to the panel. Uh, give some some wise counsel on that. I think Christians. Oh, sorry, Jesse, were you going to say? Okay. You go for it, Crystal. Um, I think Christians can peacefully protest when they see something wrong being done, and they can speak truth into the situation. Um, I think the one caution is that you know when Jesus came, he didn't come as like a political leader to overthrow the Roman yeah. regime. Mm -hmm. You know, he says in John eighteen thirty six, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom's not of this world." So, just yeah. as Christians, you know, we're not placing our ultimate hope in politics and changing the political scene. 
Um, I totally agree with with what Miranda was saying that we I think protests may be helpful. I think we have a lot of work to do in our own hearts and first making sure that in our mind and in our actions and in our relationships with other people that we are acting in a way that is just and that is righteous um, and really seeking the Lord to see if we do have hidden sins. You know, maybe we think we're not racist, but maybe there are things in there that actually we do need to uncover partiality, pride, greed, you know, there could be a number of things. So um, I guess on the protest question, I would say maybe it depends. Yeah. Okay. Jesse, you were going to jump in. Yeah. Just to add to what Miranda was saying, I, I agree with what you're saying, Miranda. Thank you. Uh, Want to add to that and say that God has not called us to fight crime with crime mm -hmm. and oppression yes. with oppression. Uh, you know, a number of churches are gathering in Louisville, I think this actually this last weekend for a walk that they called Pray and Protest. And they were raising their voice against injustice with a peaceful protest. I, so I think that's a good example of yeah. uh, something that we could do, especially in some of our major cities. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Joshua 5, an angel appears before Joshua with a sword in hand. And Joshua asks them, uh, ask him, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, neither, right? Yeah. He replied, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And I think we should have the same reaction as the angel in our politics today, especially in America. Uh, we stand for what God stands for, regardless of what the Democratic platform or Republican platform is. Uh, to stand for justice is not to stand uh, for the Democrats. It's to stand for God, who is yeah. just. Yeah. And it's uh, to stand for the unborns, not to stand with Republicans. It's to stand right. with God who gives life. Uh, and so you see, God has an allergy against sin. He hates sin wherever it's found. And so God calls us to imitate him in hating uh, sin. I think this practically looks like speaking up for the vulnerable, for the, mm -hmm. for the, vulner, for the marginalized, uh, the most voiceless and choiceless among us. But I, I also want to say, as I'm saying that, uh, that whiteness is not synonymous with racist. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't want to jump on the horse just to fall off on the other side and say, you know, all white people are racist. So we got to be careful that we don't, you know, just just fall off on the other side of the horse as well. Yeah. And no, just, uh, sorry, just one thought on that too, is there's no, like being white is not, <laughs> there should be no shame in that either, right? Like mm -hmm. God has designed us each for his glory and for our good. And so, but recognizing that whiteness does come with privilege um, and privilege doesn't necessarily mean that your life has been easy. Um, it just means that you're, you've been given certain privileges that other sure. races haven't. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting conversation. One of the things just to comment on the conversation as opposed to the issue uh, by way of close is to say, this has been a great reminder that as Christians, we can never get on board with any cultural movement entirely, like without reservation, meaning everything the culture does, even when the culture has a good cause, they'll pursue it in ways that as Christians, we cannot. So we we have to engage with discernment, right? Like we, we can, how could a Christian not get on board with the statement, Black Lives Matter? I mean, if you don't think Black Lives Matter, I'll go so far as to say, you are not a Christian, period. Um, so how could you not? But then can you go all the way with everyone else who's saying that? No, I mean, most of the people who are saying that are doing and believing other stuff we can't get on board with. That's what it means to be salt and light, right? It means to participate in everything with discernment. Like we enter everything as Jesus people. 
So like Jesse was saying, like, as a Christian, I don't think you can identify wholesale with any political party. Mm -hmm. um, you could say, I identify over here on this issue, I identify over here on this issue, but my allegiance is to Jesus, period. Um, and, and it's a reminder, because we get caught up in these in these cultural waves, one way or the other. It's just a reminder, don't ever, don't ever give yourself wholesale to any cultural movement, because uh, eventually it will lead you away from Jesus. Um, so be be in it. Don't don't withdraw either. Like I think as Christians, we can't pull out from this conversation. Like we've got to be there. That's what it means to be salt and light. We got to be there, tethered to Jesus. Um, you know, and and I I just found that passage to be, as I said, confrontational to a, a rebuke to everybody at, at every point in this process. That Isaiah forty two passage. Let's uh, let's turn the corner if we can. Um, to a, another really, you know, we don't, it's not called going shallow. Uh, it's called going deeper because we hit some big stuff. But uh, I want to go back one column. We, we started there, you know, because it was the conversation that got eaten by the internet last week. But I want to go back a column, if I can, into Deuteronomy. And uh, there's a big chunk of text in, in Deuteronomy that addresses what I would argue is one of the main interpretive challenges in Christianity. I, I think a good argument could be made that the majority of heresies and, and theological difficulties in Christendom are actually born out of just two interpretive challenges. Uh, the one interpretive challenge has to do with the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Uh, there's a couple different ways you can get that wrong and uh, a myriad of potential heresies and difficulties that arise as a result. That is true. That's not what we're. That's not what this issue is that I want to talk about now. But the second of those interpretive challenges that has given birth to all these little theological monsters and heresies uh, is the relationship between obedience and the gospel. And uh, there are at least two ways to get this wrong. It's often, uh, you know, spoken of as kind of a continuum. On the one hand, you know, the ditch on the one side is legalism. You can think that basically we obey our way into the favor of God. That if we, you know, if we keep the Ten Commandments, if we keep the law, that we earn God's grace and and favor. Uh, that is a full-on heresy, right? That's that is that's not just a weird perspective. That's just that's not Christianity. That's a heresy. Uh, but then on the other end, if you jump on the other ditch, and and there's folks who'll say, well, since we're saved by grace, since we're saved by faith, uh, then obedience doesn't matter, right? Like. Believe in Jesus, love Jesus, and do do whatever you like. Uh, it 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 doesn't matter. That heresy is called antinomianism, which just means opposed to lawism, and, uh, and those are both heresies. They're both bad. Uh, and so there's this passage, Deuteronomy 11, that I think actually is remarkably helpful. I've said before, I really am convinced that reading the Bible, reading the Bible through every year, is a universal tonic. It's a universal cure for every heresy concocted by man uh, or by the devil and then advocated by man. I mean, I'm not convinced there's a heresy that can't be cured by yearly Bible reading. Um, because if you're believing something whack, wacky and, and you keep encountering a passage like Deuteronomy 11, it, you must not be paying attention. If you're paying attention at all, it's a curative, it's a tonic. So I'm going to read this passage because I think it's just so helpful. It's out of Deuteronomy 11. It's a big chunk, but I think it's worth reading. So it says this, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, considering the discipline of the Lord your God is greatness 
his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs, his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, to their chariots. So he's, he's speaking here about the, the act of redemption, the, the exodus, the Red Sea we've got, verse 5, what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, every little thing, every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Verse eight, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you're going over to possess, that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heaven so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. All right, that's a, that's a long passage, as I said, but it brings together all the elements in this conversation. So Pastor Stephen, having read that passage, walk us through, thread the needle for us. What is the relationship between obedience and the gospel. Why do we obey God if not to be saved? It's mm, a great question. And, and you know, this one resonates with me because I, I come from a background that would have definitely leaned more on the legalistic mm. side of things. So, um, and, and I think when you, when you say that, Brother Paul, I think we need to make sure our listeners hear even legalism and antinomianism comes in shades. Sure. Some people will think, okay, God has forgiven me of my, all my sins. So all my debt's been wiped out. Now my yeah. bank account's at zero. Now right. it's my job to get it back to the plus sign. My debt was taken care of. Now it's my job to build up credit. Mm. Um, and so therefore that's a form of legalism. Some think, okay, it's my job to pay off the debt. That's right, another right. form of legalism that's, you know, that I'm working my way in. And I say that because legalism can take the form where some people think they can earn their salvation. Yeah. But for Christians, and maybe a lot of our listeners, I have a feeling, may actually claim to be believers. They don't realize that often they approach God, the gospel, all these things as if, okay, God gave me a gift. Now it's my job to keep it. Yeah. And so we're back into this. It's interesting how... Jesus in, paid it mostly. <laughs> I will do the rest. Jesus Isn't that how that goes? I did it all. I did it. All Jesus paid it off, and now it's my job to yeah, stay sorry. out of debt. But it's interesting because our readers have been reading through the book of De Deuteronomy, and this, yeah. what you just read in chapter 11, is actually quite cyclical. You're going to see this formula reappear multiple times. Yeah. One of the most explicit ones, so is back a few chapters, if we go backwards to look ahead, 
back at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God basically, through Moses, is saying almost what he has said here verbatim. Yeah. Comes to the end of it in verse 20, says, When your sons or daughters ask you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees and statutes and ordinance that the Lord our God has commanded you? He actually gives us the answer to what you're asking here. You're to tell them, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord yeah. brought us out of, the, of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on all his house. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And right there, I would say, so let me answer this in one word. Obedience is about, for the Christian, response. Yeah, good Not word earn. Yeah. I am obedient because I'm responding to the love and graciousness and mercy of God. And the best way I can describe this with, again, with us having men and women here, all of whom are, are married. I've said this, especially to young people. I am married to my childhood sweetheart. I love her um, second only to Christ himself. But if I said to Debbie, or if Debbie came down to me and, you know, our anniversary is coming up in August and we'll be married 28 years. And she said, you know, we've been married 28 years. Why do you love me? Or why have you been faithful to me? And I said, well, I've only been faithful to you because I don't want you to leave me and I don't want you to cheat on me. Now, she's not going to say, well, now let's go to the keg because now I know how much you love me. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, that's not a good but anniversary. That's not going to win her over. And I know the ladies yeah. <laughs> would go, good, good way to describe that. My wife, it feels the most love. She understands my, when, when she understands that I am responding to her. Right. And, and so when I understand all that God has done for me, when I realize what Jesus Christ has paid the price of my ransom, he's purchased me by his love with his blood. And then when someone that loves me like that, and then I trust him. See, this is the element I think we miss. We get wrapped up in the emotions of love that we forget that this, if I believe that Jesus loves me the way he does to have done what he did and forgiven me of what I needed forgiving of. And then yeah. he says, I will never lie to you. I always want what's best for you. I will always take you to places that is for your good. So I do care about who you sleep with. I do right. care about what you watch and listen to. I yeah. do have uh, very deep counsel for the how you talk, how you treat others of other races and color and social standing. And if you trust me because you know how much I love you, then you follow me. Yep. Yeah. And so my obedience is fueled out of response. And I dare say the second word is trust. Yeah. Because God would never ask me to do anything that is simply because he has a selfish desire to be to have us be masochistically miserable and i would go back even further to say one of the problems we struggle with this and if you talk to people who are either legalistic or into easy believism and the idea of cheap grace you will almost inevitably find they have a faulty view of god yeah we either have this Greek myth mythological view of God, so he's got all the power. we got to get on his good side. If you keep the rules, you get on his good side, so therefore good things must happen. Or he's this big man upstairs, this teddy bear that somehow I manipulate. And we're like big brothers now, and we're friends, and we're chummy. And, you know, he's got the great, you know, ultimate platinum uh, credit card who's always, you know, can flash that thing whenever I need trouble. So we're good now. And in both cases, you cheapen the gospel. 
you pile up guilt and shame. And so you do one of two things. You either try to justify your existence yeah, or you yeah. try to run and hide from your shame. Yeah. Whereas I feel the Bible in this passage in Deuteronomy, if you look at what he says, especially in the early verses before you got in the second half of the passage, he gives you the whole reason God has done this and God has done that yeah, and yeah. God has done this. And, and so you can trust him. He's always, well, he's, it's, it's, it's a gospel passage, right? Like, it is. Absolutely. We use, we use the, this little mnemonic device here um, that we stole, like everything good is stolen. We stole it from the, um, from the, uh, Oh, what's the, not the Helvetic Confession. I can't even remember right now. Heidelberg? Heidelberg, thank you, yes. Um, and, uh, but we just expanded it. So we, we talk about the five Gs of the gospel. And uh, so it's, you know, God, guilt, grace, and then gratitude and glory. And uh, what you're use, using as response, we, we call gratitude because because gratitude starts with a G. Uh, but, but in reality, it's, it's response. It's, it's a response to God's grace. And the, and the response is gratitude, right? Like the, in essence, uh, you know, I always say what, what fuels obedience is gratitude. Like when you understand what God did for you, mm. right? And, and, then, but the, and then also it's trust. So I, I love that, that expression as well. I think, so I think, that is, I think that is, I'm hesitant to say that's 99.9% .9 of the answer because it almost makes it sound like I don't think that's the answer. I, I think that's the answer. But I think the answer just gets better. Um, meaning, so I think it's all of what you just said. It's the gospel, right? Like God, it's it's the preamble to the Ten Commandments, right? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you know, here's some commandments. Uh, so it's it's responding to the redemption that that God graciously provided. Yes, 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 yes. However, the passage even kind of puts some cherries and sprinkles on that. And and I I want to pull some of that out too. Um there's a, it sounds like there's a connection here between, dare I say, dare I say, at risk of being a prosperity gospel preacher, but dare I say there's a connection between obedience, presence, power, possession, prosperity. I run out of peas, but it, there's some sprinkles on, on our little ice cream sundae. Is there not, panel? Absolutely. Well, you stole my thunder because that was. Oh, I was, perfect. I was going <laughs> <laughs> to. Sorry, brother. Carry word. on. I was to give, give, so for me, it's response, and then yeah. it's trust, and then it's the relationship, yeah. and and the idea of the fact that God says when you're when you trust me and you're close to me and you trust me with what I'm telling you, then I'm just going to do more of what I did for you in the gospel. I'm going to keep yeah. lavishing this love on you. I'm going to keep yeah. protecting you. I'm going to keep guiding you. I would never ever tell you to do anything that's not for your good. Right. And, and that's where I think, that's why for me, the middle word, I actually think that as Christians, we struggle with this the most. So I'll make this very practical. I, I, you know, Jesse's our youngest guy here, youngest married, about to become a dad. Um, I get asked this by a lot of young people, you know, does Jesus care who I sleep with? And I emphatically tell them, yes. That was and our sermon topic last Sunday, brother. He's it not literally was. We're doing an apologetics series. Yeah. Right. He's it's not a, a very so common question. Why does God say, yeah. I want you not to have sex before marriage? Is he that? Yeah. You know, because listen, we can tell you that he wants you to know the joy of unfettered right. love with one person. People don't realize how much Satan in the world has lied to us by saying multiple partners makes you more experienced, this, that, and everything. Yeah. They don't tell you, but now you've got comparison. You've yeah, got guilt yeah. and shame. You've got all these skeletons in your closet. You bring this into every kind of relationship you're going to have from that point to the, you know. Now, we got to balance that with because 
There's no way that God can't redeem whatever your past is. Of course, yeah. But the reality is, and I'll give you an example again. My wife and I, I, I threw, I made a lot of bad decisions as a teenager. Does Debbie know you're about to tell the story? That's all I want to know. Yes, yes, she okay, does. Okay, all right. I just, I'm trying to help you out. You got your anniversary coming up, right? But I will tell you, as a young man who went through a lot of things, and you guys know, I said this the other last week that I ran away from home, made a lot of yeah. bad decisions. I am a trophy of God's grace. My wife, rather, did what God told her to do. Trusted God, made right yeah. decisions. Um, I am the only man she's ever been with, all of these types of things. Here's what I will say. Now that we're 48 years old, 28 years married, I still struggle with the skeletons of thoughts and past things that Satan can use, a song, a smell, anything can trigger, and I can have a Vietnam yeah. flashback to a whole past life. Debbie does not struggle with that. Yeah. yeah Debbie God's does not. Right. She lives the joyful freedom of having listened to the greatness of and so all these promises if you do this i will give you this if i do so debbie s s just sleeps better her mind is not mm. got cobwebs in it that i have to constantly go to the word of god and get reacquainted with the gospel now yeah. having said that i will say this for those quote unquote and debbie would tell you that she got raised on this goody two-shoes stuff is just like tim keller's book the prodigal god debbie has had to also learn to confess her righteousness yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah, become yeah. self-righteousness yeah. and be self-sufficient. However, that doesn't change the fact the promise is Debbie doesn't deal with, and I will say this in relationships and marriages and stuff like this, I think this is real easy because a lot of married couples might watch this, comparing, comparing. Sure. And, and I tell people this all the time. We're so obsessed with sexuality and all these types of things. And so one of these are just one tangible way that when you do what God tells you to do, you just have the joy of enjoying each other and not asking silly questions that often Satan uses to put wedges yep. in that, just that one area. And then you God's can, not keeping anything good from us, right? Like that no, is it's just, in essence, we've just spent our, our time talking about, you know, Genesis three, yes. right? Like all, all sin is basically thinking God might be keeping something. The good stuff's mm -hmm. on the top shelf, right? And he, he doesn't want me having it. And so I got to go get it. And, and that's where the trust comes in. Like, Obedience is is generally just an expression of being comfortable in in the love of God, right? Like I love God. I bet you he he sees stuff I don't see. He he doesn't want to hurt me. He's not trying to keep anything from me. I don't understand why he said that, but you know what? I bet you it'll make sense to me in the end. And mm. it's it's just love. It's just trust. And and Old Testament and New. This is something I think even so here you 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 said you 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 came out of a legalistic con context um, and. Uh, I, I don't know whether I would say I came out of the other side of the context. I would just say, I, I'm not sure that I came out of a legalistic context, but I would say, I think a lot of Christians need, need the other side of the story, which is to, to be told um, that, you know, God's ways are right. And that there, you take a risk, right? When you, you can outrage the Holy spirit, like that's in the new Testament. Right. Uh, and if you want to live a life of power of presence, then obedience matters. So if you if you love Jesus, like if you want the sense of his nearness, if you want a sense of intimacy, well, you better get rid of sin because you can't have intimacy with Jesus and all kinds of disgusting habits and addictions. Like the, you got to choose. And and it, once you get addicted to Jesus, um, then those decisions get real easy. What was the, who, Jesse, you'll remember, who wrote the book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection? Or not the book, that was the line. Was that, was that Edwards? Thomas Boston? Or was it, okay. say again. 
I, I thought it was Edwards. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't think it's Edwards, but I can't, but I, what good is it? Because I can't remember uh, who it was anyway. But it's a great line, the expulsive power of a new affection. And maybe it was Edwards, you, you could be right. But I love that idea of when you fall in love with Jesus, boy, it, it, you know, the desire to have that intimate presence with him makes sin seem like a bad deal. Jesse, you were going to jump in and I, I started quoting Pierre. Yeah, Pastor Paul, I think that's, I think that's exactly what scripture says. I, you know, I think many forget that love for God is such a strong motivator. You know, yeah. thankfulness for our salvation is a stronger motivator than fear of judgment. And I think that's one of the stumbling blocks a lot of people have to understanding this relationship with, of obedience to salvation. Yeah. Is a, a lot of people say that, you know, fear of judgment. It, well, if what's my motivation to do good works if, if you know, uh, I'm going to be saved anyways? Mm. You know, love, <laughs> love for God, the change, the new heart that you've received. Uh, intimacy with the Lord, his ways are right, they lead to life. And, you know, I, I think Ephesians 2 is just another example of like what we were talking about with the preamble to the Ten Commandments. We have, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Good works, man. Right? And so what is the relationship of good works to the Christian? It's we don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. Yeah, well Meaning said. that we, we work from a thankful heart for yeah. the work that God's already done for us. Mm -hmm. And I think as we grow in our knowledge of exactly what God's been doing, and we ask the Holy Spirit to fan that flame inside of us, we're gonna grow in our obedience. Yeah, yeah, well said. And I, I love, what, you know, you started Jesse with, by saying that, that this motivation of love, right? That obedience is love. I don't know how you couldn't get that if you're a Bible reader, right? Like, right. so we just read it from the Old Testament, but right. then you got, here's 1 John 5, 3, like this is pretty deep in the New Testament. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Like it's so right. clear. Uh, like you cannot say you love Jesus if, if you are refusing to make war on mm -hmm. sinful passions and addictions. Like you just can't. You must love those things more than Jesus. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but I mean, if, if you don't, if you don't love Jesus enough to turn around to things that offend Jesus and push Jesus away and make war on those things, then you don't love Jesus. Right. I mean, that I, I'm not, I can't, I don't know how you could read the Bible and not get that. Is, I am, I, am, I, am I, am I coming? Am I legalistic in saying that Stephen? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I saw your eyebrows furrow. I thought maybe I crossed no, Miranda, the line. We're going to jump in there. Yeah, I was just going to say, ahead. I think uh, Martin Luther's quote um, about how salvation is through faith alone, but it's never alone, just yes. really summarizes this argument so well is that, yes, of course, it's alone through faith. And that doesn't change Old or New Testament. It's always through faith by which you are saved. However, if that faith is real and genuine, it's always going to be accompanied with uh, the fruit of the spirit, the works, the obedience that will show evidence of that. So, I mean, his Luther's little one-liner is so memorable and so Isn't helpful. He good? Do you want to know a funny thing about that quote? And this is a true story. So I've heard that quote. I'm sure I heard it from, you know, John Piper or somebody like that. And so I went Googling it. Oh, and yes. uh, so the, 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 the statement is uh, we're saved by grace alone. Uh, or no, sorry, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. So I typed that in into Google. And it comes up, apparently, both Luther and Calvin said it uh, uh, independent of each other. There's no, there's no evidence that, that one got it from the other, but they both said it in slightly, very slightly different ways. 
Those reformers are on to something. I don't know. The Holy Spirit must have been doing well, yeah, something. I don't know. But All if right. I may too, brother, just real quick, just because, again, for our listeners, I think one of the other struggles we have with this about understanding the idea of relationship, why it throws us, is because we read words about obedience, and yet yeah. all of us realize we're never going to be perfectly obedient. No. And so there's a struggle. And then we look around us, and some people seem to do better at things than we do, whereas I can be, you know, some stuff I struggle with, some stuff you struggle with. And we look around, and we don't realize that this these types of passages are not meant to say, you get you read it, you get it, you do it, right? That, oh, yeah. No, no. This is a journey. This is a life. This, this law, <laughs> if you look at what... Yeah. The Bible in Deuteronomy, what it tells us about the the process by which Jesus took them out of Egypt, yeah. it was weeks, months, years in happening. Okay. And again, if you have the confident love of Christ, if you realize that your motivation is love, then remember, you talked about Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve doubted God's love, one, they took matters into their own hands. Two, they then hid from him yeah. because they didn't feel it was safe. Yeah. So the idea, it's not just that this helps us with our holiness and obedience. It helps us even with our trials of disobedience because we are motivated and feel safe to go running back to God and saying, Lord, I know you love me so much. I screwed this up and I need more help. And so it, it gives us hope for the struggle you were talking about. If we don't war on our members, but yeah. you won't go to war unless you believe it's safe to go get filled up with new artillery and you can yeah. go back yeah. to the captain and say, I need an, I need, I need more, more replenishment because I ran out of ammo. Um, you know, one of the things about marriage is, again, I go back to it. This has been the great learner for me is I know when I'm trusting Debbie because when I screw up, it's always safe to go back to her. Yeah. Um, and so I think God has given, and that's why I think the, I use marriage so much because in Ephesians, <laughs> Paul says that marriage is to display that mystery of the gospel. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something we can, we can always remember. So it's not just about the, the obedience, but the hope of this same God who has done this. He is so patient and so kind. You can always, so you don't run from your sin. You don't justify your sin. You don't make excuses for, for your sin. As John said, you come and you walk into the light as he is in the light and you have fellowship yeah. Without denying that you have sin, right? If you say that you have no sin, right. you're a liar. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we got to move on, but I, I don't want to leave Deuteronomy yet. I just want to do one more in Deuteronomy. Uh, there was a couple weeks ago where we did like five out of numbers. This is good stuff there in the Old Testament, but uh, I just want to go forward one chapter in Deuteronomy to Deuteronomy 12. Uh, this is a shorter passage. Uh, I want to read it, but uh, there's some regulations about worship here and uh, about the importance of worshiping together. That's the piece that I want you to hear. So it's Deuteronomy 12, 17 to 18. It says, uh, God says here, you may not eat, and he's talking about eating of the sacrifice. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or, or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who's in who is within your town. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. So God says, listen, I don't, I don't, uh, granted that you do family worship, family worship is super important. We talked about that last week. But you can't just do that. Uh, you need to gather together. There were these commanded feasts and uh, they were a big deal. And you need to come and you need to bring your household and you need to bring your kids and you need to bring your servant. And everybody needs to come together at the central location. You need to be 
together. It's the same sort of thing you see in Hebrews 10, 25. So this is an Old Testament, New Testament thing. Do not neglect the gathering, the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Old Testament and New, while there, there are tons of, you know, encouragements towards private devotion and family altar and family devotion, yes, 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 yes. Nevertheless, there's also a command, a requirement that we gather together. Now, obviously, um, you know, we're in this COVID-19, we're in this pandemic where, you know, for love of neighbor, we've, we've had to stop gathering together. And, uh, you know, we were kind of talking off camera before we started. Uh, now that all of our provinces and states are, are opening up, there's a, there's a challenge there because some of our folks have learned to love uh, worship at home, right? Like, hey, I'm gonna, I don't remember which, and maybe I shouldn't say which one of you anyway, because I don't wanna get, get you in trouble with your parishioners, but our, our people are loving, you know, waking up, wearing their PJs, and uh, not brushing their hair, brushing their teeth, and, and uh, just sitting in front of the TV, watching church, and virus or no virus, they're not coming back. <laughs> and uh, we're faced with a challenge here where we almost have to reconvince people that, no, 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 together matters. So, Crystal, let me, let me throw it to you. Uh, in terms of the provinces and states, uh, you and I think you and Jesse uh, down there in, in Kentucky, Alberta and Kentucky, are maybe a little ahead of the, the rest of us there. Um, but how's that going? Why, first of all, why is it important that we gather together? Why can't I just stay at home and, and uh, you know, wear my PJs and do church on, on TV? Why, why does this whole together thing matter? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because, I mean, the first thing we would all say is, well, God, God tells us to, but, but I think you want to know beyond that, like, why, why does God tell us to gather together? Um, and it's, yeah, it's interesting. In Deuteronomy 12, I think it highlights the fact that God wants to be worshipped in a prescribed way. Like, he wants to be worshipped the way that he wants to be worshipped. So the Israelites had to come and worship at a specific place um, before the Lord, and then they were to rejoice before him there. Um, now for the church, you know, we don't have to worship God in a specific location. Um, for example, in John 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So there's a, there is a shift now in the New Testament where the location of worship becomes less important, but it's essential that we worship in spirit and truth. Hebrews 10, you know, the other passage that you quoted, um, you know, God also prescribes how we'd like to be worshipped in that passage when the church gathers together. Um, you know, the church is not bound by a physical location like the nation Israel was, but it's still a gathering of people. Yeah. And there's specific yeah. things we're supposed to do when we're gathering. Um, it says in verse 22, we're to draw near to God. Uh, together we're we are holding fast the confession of our hope in verse 23. You know, we're to stir one another up to love and good works and encourage one another and look forward to the last day. Um, so those are all things in that in that Hebrews passage we see. Um, and these things are all much harder to do at a distance. Um, I think we, there's some things we can do imperfectly through Zoom calls. You know, we can have some fellowship, some hear, hear some preaching online. Um, but the truth is we're embodied people and we're meant to be yeah. physically together. You know, God could have just made us spirits with no bodies, but he took care to make us spirits embodied. And I think, you know, that matters. There's so many one another passages in scripture that talk about, um, 
you know, things we're supposed to do with and for and to one another. Um, you know, for example, he or yeah. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, you know, this is hard to fulfill our role in the church when we're not actually physically together. Um, also, I was thinking there's sort of an aspect of evangelism um, that's important that, you know, um, when the world sees sort of this mismatched group of people coming together, loving each other, wanting to be together, prioritizing it. Um, I think it is a powerful testimony to the watching world. And um, I thought of John 13, 35, where it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, and we were already talking about this sort of Christian distinctive of love for each other. And I think we just actually need to be present together to love each other well. Um, so that's what I would say as a starting point. Yeah, it's interesting on the evangelism side of things. Uh, I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, one of the other great things now that we're all doing church at home is it's so easy to invite friends to church. All you got to do is share on Facebook. And there's, just, there's a sense in which that's true. Uh, we've, we've all had, you know, guests or visitors watch services who, who probably would never darken the door of the church. But it's, it's hard to disciple somebody that nobody sees, nobody knows, right? You just, you know, we do our best. Like somebody will say, oh, I'm a new visitor. And half a dozen people will say, oh, welcome, Bob. Great that you're here. Nobody knows what Bob looks like. If you ran into Bob at Zares, you wouldn't know. Uh, nobody's taking Bob out for coffee, right? Like, so like presence matters. And Bob's not seeing how the gospel is worked out in your family. Bob's not seeing how Joe talks to his wife and going, well, gee, I guess I better go home and talk to Claire that way. Like uh, there's all kinds of stuff that's not happening. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't, I think the Facebook share is great. Um, but I don't think it's a replacement for the evangelistic effect of a loving community of worship. Jesse, you were going to jump in there. Oh, your mic's not on buddy. Yeah. You got to turn on that microphone. Sorry. There we go. Okay, no there are, there are graces from God that we need, which can only be experienced in community. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the grace of mutual encouragement, spring one another onto good works uh, through our words and our example. Uh, grace of accountability, helping each other, you know, see blind spots and weaknesses that maybe we can't see in our own lives. Um, and then I would even say the grace of a continually soft heart. So Hebrews 3 says that if we don't gather, mm -hmm. uh, we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Yeah. And we actually need that gathering, that, that um, exhorting one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And uh, just alongside the... Uh, what Crystal was saying with the evangelistic aspect, there's a uh, one scholar uh, who actually said that the church on earth will be a colony of heaven enjoying in advance the life of the age to come. And I think that was from George Eldon Ladd. I, I think it's just such a helpful picture that the church is meant to be a picture of the covenant community that we're going to be experiencing in heaven. Not a perfect example, but a foretaste, the shadow. Yeah, that's really good. I like that too. And I liked how, um, Crystal, you talked about this mismatch community. And I think that's just, it's such a good um, word picture of really what the church is, if it should be of looking different and being from all ages and uh, being from all social backgrounds. And, and you can't really get that on a computer screen. You can't really get the full effect of what the church should be when you're just seeing someone's profile picture and um, and that's it, or their name, you know, it's it's missing that kind of punch. 
Yeah, right. and I think I, I look at this whole you know COVID thing with with we've everybody's moved everything online. I mean, we're having this conversation. This is our online Bible study, so I mean, uh, we're not trying to be hypocritical, but this this is a good stopgap measure, right? Like I think of it this: if if all the grocery stores went out of business and you had a case of insure down in your basement, like you'd be thankful for that, wouldn't you? Uh, right? Like you you you'd have your insure every day, and that would make sure that you, you know you didn't die. But as soon as the grocery stores open up again, you'd you'd go out for some barbecue chicken, right? Like you'd you'd go out for some some ribs and some eggs and bacon, and and I, I just I, I think folks need to understand that that this cannot sustain the church the, these technologies, uh, not at all. Um, like you think the reason that we're caring for for seniors, right, and we're we're able to love on them and and deliver food and do their shopping, why? Because we know them and we love them. If if some lady just popped up on our Facebook feed and said, "Hey, it's Joe Ellen, you know, from uh, Penetang Street, joining the church," we'd all say, "Oh, hello, Joe Ellen. Nice to see you." Would we know that she's a senior? Would we Would we take the time to care for her? Would we go and love her and bring her? No, like you can't build the relationships that are necessary to sustain ministry, you know, on the internet. Like that's that's not a thing. And uh, neither can you disciple people on the internet. Uh, I, I'll tell you as a preacher, um, I, I don't want to say I'm done preaching to a camera, but I will just say, it, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm trusting the Lord that he's doing something with that every week. But so far, my cameraman is no more converted than he was at the start of this pandemic, right? And like, I, is, I trust the Holy Spirit's doing something with this in the hearts of folks who are listening. But you know, Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't like people even listening to his sermons on tape. Um, you know, he, and he said, or, certainly he said, don't listen to it while you're washing your car or some such nonsense. Like he was, he just so believed in, in the, the effect of being there under the movements of the Holy Spirit in the gathered body. Um, and I don't, I don't go as far as Lloyd-Jones. I'm not saying that our preaching over the internet hasn't been helpful. I know the Holy Spirit can work in weird ways, but I'm just saying it's a can of insure, folks. Um, like for the, for the real meal, we got to be together. Am I wrong on that? Am I crazy? I probably I, am. I have a friend of mine that said, don't make the exception to the rule, the rule. Yeah. And, and well so said. I, you know, yeah, don't get addicted to insure. Right. And then two other things. One, goodness sake, because I know you're, we're going to move to this. The, the Bible ends with a beautiful bouquet of humanity gathered. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then finally, let me just make this real. Yeah, quick. if you don't like gathered church, you're not going to like heaven at all. Right. So, let, but let's, <laughs> if you ever wanted a case study of, of the church to take a look, how, how do we know that Black Lives Matter is a movement? Yeah. It's because a group of people are gathering and they are right, risking. Right. Now I'm not saying I agree with everything we're saying, but what I'm saying is what, what has given Yeah, they're risking infection to, to gather for that cause. Right. And what gives them credibility. I'm just going to raise my eyebrows. I don't know if you can see that on the podcast, but I'm just saying they're risking infection because they believe in that cause. That's what I'm saying. Right. So, yeah. but they, they understand the power of gathering because the world yeah. then has to say, this is not just an idea. It's not just a theory. It is actually yeah. a human movement because look at the people gathering yeah. and from genesis to revelation one of the ways the world knew that god was moving because he was moving amongst people and there was a gathered people yeah and so you know i it's easy for me if someone calls me up oh we've got a thousand views on our on our service well okay but that could have been me going a thousand times click 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 yeah. Um, you know, but if I yeah. say there was 150 people gathered at our service together, yeah, that's right. That's real. That's right. 
right? And so I just think that those three things, but I, I agree, my, my good friend who's a missionary in South Africa once told me, don't make the exception to the rule, the rule. Yeah, well well said. This has been a grace and a kindness, but this is this is not the Lord's will going forward. We'll, we're, we're gonna continue to do, you know, we're starting to open up this Sunday and we're gonna continue to offer services online because we've got, we've got seniors, you know, we've got folks who are um, immunocompromised, uh, all kinds of all kinds of very legitimate reasons to be home, right? And so, especially during the, the reopening process, I don't want to communicate that that that's not legit. But at at some point, right? Um, we we need to be together. We need to be together. So we're going to be doing both. We're going to be doing the technology as a supplement. But it's kind of like uh, you know when you're when you're weaning someone off the the supplement and back on solid food. Uh, that we we do need. There needs to be a process here. There needs to be a ramp up. So, all right, uh, we need to, to move on again. I want to I jump into the Psalms column, uh, if I can, and uh, have a little conversation about healing. We hit some powerful Psalms, big, big promise Psalms uh, in the last eight days. And I say eight days because I want to kind of pull in Psalm 91, if I can, and go back to some huge promises there. Uh, verse three of Psalm 91 says, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. That sounds good. Uh, Psalm 91.10, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. That sounds good as well. Uh, and then this week we had Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 might might be the most famous verse in the Old Testament with respect to healing. Verses 2 to 5, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So, Jesse, that that almost sounds, almost sounds like if I'm a Christian, I'm not going to get COVID. Maybe I won't even age, right? My youth is going to be renewed like the like the eagle. Uh, you know, help me understand. These are, these are big promises. Uh, help me understand what exactly are these Psalms promising? How do I... How do I access that? Who gets that? When who, When do we get that? Uh, open that up for me. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Paul. This is such a biblically important question. I believe 100%, absolutely, we have the promise of healing from God. But the question is, when is yeah. that promise fulfilled? Yeah. Uh, I will say for Christians, it is certainly in heaven right. and sometimes in this life through faith. Uh, in 1959, George Eldon Ladd wrote a short book called The Gospel and the Kingdom, really helpful book. Yeah, yeah, very much and so. uh, through there, he traces uh, through the Bible the now and the not yet aspects yeah. of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet come in its fullness. And the same goes for all of the promises of the kingdom. Um, they are fulfilled in the kingdom and there's this not, now and not yet aspect. And so one of those promises is, is this one right here. It's healing. Yeah. And so God's people are indeed promised healing here in the Psalms. And we see that healing is perfected in the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 22, we have the tree of life restored to us and its leaves are for the what? The healing of the, the healing nations. Of the nations yeah. Right. And so it, this in our uh, full and final healing in heaven, we will have glorified resurrection bodies that no longer experience pain yeah. or sickness or death. It would be amazing. And yet Jesus tells us that we are even now in some sense in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within us. Yeah. Lad says that the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. And so even now we can experience partial tastes of the coming fullness yeah. of healing, uh, which means practically. Appetizers almost, eh? 
appetizers exactly which means yeah. practically that god still heals yeah. and he delights to heal even though he does not guarantee healing in this life which means that we can't name it and claim it we can't just walk it out you know use those power words authoritatively take from the spiritual realm and manifest it in my life uh, absolutely not the word of faith movement is bankrupt in their theology i think the holy spirit is not a force to be manipulated i know he's not a force to be manipulated he's a person and he should be approached as the God who said in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So when we pray for healing, we need to ask for God. We never demand healing. Yeah. And number two, we should appeal. That's so, to- uh, you know, not to interrupt you, you keep going with that, but I just want to say amen. Is that a thing? I just like, <laughs> thanks for saying that. I'm so tired of people thinking that, you know, acting like pagans. Like if we jump up and down and shout and demand, and if we didn't get it the first time, say it again. Like saying it loud makes it true. I just, right. I, I just don't understand that. Like we go to God and ask. If one of my kids came to me and said, you know, daddy can I have the keys to the car. Daddy can I have the keys to the car. Oh, daddy, daddy can I have the keys to the car. They're not getting the keys to the car. They might get something they didn't ask for. I'll tell you that. And I, I just, you come and you ask and with humility and with grace. Anyway, thanks for saying that. That was my soapbox. Go. And you ask according to the Father's character. Yeah. You appeal to God's glory, to his goodness, right? Yeah. To his mercy. And I think throughout the Bible, it's clear that there are certain kinds of people that God tends to bless with healing. And there are certain kinds that God does not tend to bless. Yeah. So these are people who exercise faith. And I think we've had this discussion before, Pastor Paul. You know, God delights in faith. He delights when we trust in him like a child trusts in his father. Yeah. And God tends to give good gifts to children who exercise faith. Yeah. Uh, but again, this healing... It's not guaranteed. The kingdom yeah. uh, of God is not here yet in its fullness. And I think there are, um, you know, one of two reasons why they don't get healed. Christians don't get healed in this life. And both reasons should be considered. It's not just one or the other. Number one, obviously, is that it is not the decretive will of God to do so. It's not in his plan. Uh, and then another reason is that we lack faith. And I think that's the obvious reason. Well, can uh, I throw that, another reason? Uh, you know, sure. in James 5, because we believe in healing here at our church. Um, we, you know, we invite people in who are, have chronic illness and chronic pain, different things. And we lay hands on them, obviously not now in this pandemic, but we lay hands on them. We anoint them with oil and we pray for healing. And we read from James five, where it does say, you know, confess your sins that, that you may be healed. Um, and so we, we believe that unconfessed sin could, could block, um, you know, a blessing from heaven. Do you, do you believe that? Absolutely. You're right. There, There is a third option there. I, I was thinking more in mind of uh, where James was talking about, we have not because we ask not. And when right. we do ask, we ask 100%. for the wrong motives. Uh, and so we shouldn't expect to receive anything with a lack of faith. But you're right. Sin can block blessings. 100%. Let me let me throw something out to the panel because I think this is very practical. I get asked it all the time. So let's suppose we believe like Jesse. And I believe like Jesse. I, I think you've you've nailed it. Um, so suppose you've got an issue. You've got a chronic pain issue. You've got fill in the blank, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever you've got. And, and you, you pray and, and then you, the Lord doesn't take that away. So you do a self-analysis and, and you identify, you, you take another look through your life, another inventory, you spot some sins, some blind spots. You confess those earnestly and humbly. You pray again, nothing. Mm. Um, you build up faith. You read Psalm 91, you memorize Psalm 91. You, you pray again. God, God doesn't heal you. Do you, do you pray again or do you embrace that as God's will? It's not God's will. 
I would, yeah, I would keep praying. Well, and actually it's not really theoretical for me. I do have an autoimmune condition um, called lupus. And so it is sort of an ongoing thing. And I have gone through this process you're describing, Paul, where you do yeah. pray. Um, and I think there is a point where you say, okay, I'm doing all the things I know to do. I've confessed all the sins that I know to confess. Um, I need to trust that this is God's providence for my life at this point. And yet, I don't think we ever get fatalistic about it. I think we continue to pray and we continue to hope. And, and ultimately, I read something like Psalm 91, um, and I think this, this will be me. This will be me one day because I am in Christ and I have eternal life and, and I will have complete healing for eternity, you know, and it's just a short time now. So I would say it's both, it's both being content with, well, do you know, like the, the man born blind mm -hmm. when, when the disciples asked Jesus who sinned this man or his, his parents that he was born blind and Jesus said, neither. It's yeah. so that God would be glorified in him. And I think sometimes God just has purposes that we don't totally understand yeah. or that may extend beyond us. Like I, I, I actually think sometimes when we're sick, it's not even about us. It's about other people and God's working out his plans in a million different ways. So um, I would say both find contentment, but also keep praying because mm -hmm. God is, he is generous and he is good and you never know, you know, he could heal me at any moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I do believe that. And I think there's such a, th I think God appreciates perseverance. And in, even if, you know, I don't like the word impertinence, but in, in importunate, how about that? That's a good word. Uh, and, you know, isn't it in the King James Bible that that parable is called the importunate uh, widow? Uh, the Possibly. One who just, I don't yeah, know. Keeps, keeps coming. <laughs> yeah, the persistent widow is what I think it's called in the ESV. But um, the idea is she keeps coming back and back and back and back. And I think of the bowls in Revelation 8. Um, you know, that are filled up. And I sometimes think, you know, each, each prayer is a drop in that bowl. And, you know, and one day, whether it's the last day or someday before that, you know, that, that bowl is going to be emptied out and accompanied with all the power and glory of heaven on your life. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I vote for keep praying as well. Um, and but, so I think you know, a, uh, there's sweetness in, in the, the strength God gives with the pain. Yeah, brother. I think we have a balance in in Paul himself in Second Corinthians, right? Yeah. He had this thorn in the flesh, mm -hmm. and he went to the Lord, and then the Lord actually gave him an answer of, "It is better for you to suffer with this." Yeah. Um, and and yet, so you've got these balance. But then we have other instances where the same apostle Paul, who was stoned to death and raised from the light, raised from the dead, bitten by a snake, like. God did many wonderful things in this man's life. And then also for his glory, didn't do miraculous healings and said, that still is a theology of giving me glory. And where Paul said, I would rather glory in my infirmity because mm -hmm. when I'm weak, then you are strong. And so I think sometimes it's, a, it's, again, I think so often with these things, we have to remember, it's not about either or, but both and. Yeah. So very I, often I right. just completely plead to the Lord for healing. And I, one of the things I, I struggle with or, or try to be persistent and faithful with, and because we're like you, we've, we've anointed people with oil, laid hands on them, all those types of things. And we have seen God do some pretty unexplainable, miraculous things. And we have yeah. seen God be mercifully silent and people have gained a fresh perspective yeah. on their suffering. And in some ways would say, I wasn't feel, healed physically, but I was healed spiritually in the sense of, I, I now know how to deal with this. Yeah. 
for well, that's what I mean. There, there can be sweetness sometimes yeah. in lingering pain because it, it forces you to rely on the Lord and drives you in. But of course, there's also great joy in, in a miraculous healing. And, and uh, you know, God, God gives out both. I want to move us in. We're running out of time here. Um, so we'll kind of handle this one rapid fire. Moving to the New Testament. This column, or this, uh, this week in our New Testament column, we were in Revelation. And uh, we started, we actually introduced the book of Revelation uh, last week. And I thought Wyatt did a fabulous job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think we were all more or less, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we're all more or less on the same page that, is, uh, that we fall broadly within the camp of the historicist or idealist camp in the, in the sense of understanding the book of Revelation as offering a, a trans-temporal interpretation of history. That is to say, there's a, there's a pattern of providence that kind of cycles around. It was true. It is true. It will be true in a particular way, um, you know, in the, in the time right before the, the return of Christ. So uh, I, I think we were all generally there. So within that broad framework, or if, if I've misunderstood you, coming in for another framework, this, this past week we hit some of the, the real um, interesting and potentially confusing uh, symbols in the book of Revelation. I'm gonna throw them out rapid fire. You can hit them in any order you want. Just be aware, don't take more than a minute for any of these uh, and we'll get through them. So here we hit, we hit the 144,000. What's that? The great multitude by the throne of God. You already referenced that. Uh, The two witnesses, the woman and the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast that arises out of the earth and the mark of the beast, which is 666. So everything, you know, pretty easy. These are a bunch of softballs here, right? Uh, Take your pick, swing away. Take them in any order you like, but don't do any more than a minute for any of them. Go. Okay, I'll go first. Go. 144,000. I've yeah. heard that that just means, oh, that's the easiest one, right, Jesse? Yeah, like, go first. I always go first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to speak fast on this show. I have, like, that was uh, 15 seconds just explaining that. Um, it's just the completed, the idea. It's not a literal number. It's like the all of the elect. It's representative because of the, the use of numbers. And then it's often thought to be 12 times 12 times a thousand. So the fullness of the old Testament church, the fullness of the new Testament church to the maximum extreme. Good. You said it so well. It's like, you've done a podcast or like some, you've talked about (laughs) (laughs) the other thing, uh, the two witnesses I have heard that, and I don't, I don't have a theory. This is just, and I can't even cite it, but that the two witnesses were thought to be Elijah and Moses from the transfiguration. Um, and that they would do this witness. I always love that, like that part. I, and the idea of also the, um, when it's definitely is picking up on Moses and Elijah's symbolism, how it's picking up. Like, cause I mean, talking about, you know, holding the rain and, and everything they're talking about there is Moses and Elijah, um, it, they're borrowing from those canvases, but so then there's confusion as to in what sense or to what end. Yeah, absolutely. Just last thought on that is just mm-hmm. their death and then their ascension. And then the fact that the revelation actually says that the people give each other presents. I've always yeah. found that to be very interesting. Okay. Yeah. The world celebrates at the death mm-hmm. of those two witnesses. All right. Anyone want to jump in on either the two witnesses or anything else? Go. I just I, I read recently just in regards to Revelation uh, six and seven and eight, um, you know, the hero of every story. And one of the best ways to make this easy on everybody's mind is the hero is always Jesus. Yes. Um, yeah, you learn that in Sunday school, don't you? <laughs> right. But <laughs> even about the, the one hundred forty four thousand one one person that I was reading about on this. And it's funny because I come from a very 
classic dispensational background. That's the way I was raised. That was yeah. what I cut my teeth on. So I, I thought, man, I could really, you know, get the charts and graphs out and I could really unpack it up. In fact, when I was first doing the beginnings of my master's, I wrote an entire paper on the 144,000 from a classic dispensational. I got Grant Jeffries, uh, Jeff, Jeffries or uh, Grant Jeffries on the phone when I was in Bible school for a, for a paper. I was in yeah. it too. Yeah, Ryrie yep. and Pentecost were my boys. They were like yeah, the yeah. bookends of my boys. But I, I just love how this person puts it. It says the 144,000 aren't the point, nor are the creatures around the throne or all the believers clad in white. The gospel is the point. Yeah. Salvation comes through Christ alone, even in heaven, in the throne room of God. This is the sermon being preached with the gospel in the foreground. The backstory suddenly makes sense. Yeah, well, and so. I just love it when, when we, we do that. And, and, and the idea of, I think sometimes Satan, and this is what I would encourage our readers or our listeners. If you start staring at trees, you miss the forest. And, and so when you start taking... But these details are important. Like meaning... Oh, absolutely. Th this is part of a text that was meant to comfort a church in a chaotic world. Mm -hmm. And and so I would say there's as much value in meditating on a chapter in Revelation as there is in meditating on a psalm or on a, sure. a chapter of the gospel. But I would also say you and I are the of the age to know. You can also get lost in the weeds. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. In, in the sense of yeah. we have to have a bit of humility here to understand that the, the, the readers of this, the, the receivers of this, these seven churches understood this imagery. They, 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 they automatically understood the genre and stuff. And so, they, and so we are having to have a bit of humility to say, okay, I don't automatically read that and understand it. When I read the 144,000, that listing of these 12 tribes, and I can get lost in what order are the 12 tribes and how come those tribes are listed, not these other two tribes that sometimes are missing in other lists. Yeah. These guys got it. But if I step back and go, wait a second, as, as Miranda talked about, as she jumped in very quickly, the idea here is the completeness, the fullness that, that God is getting. Yeah. And, and we, we talked about this last week, the, the theology, the practical theology of this is that it brings comfort. Yeah. It, in the midst of a chaotic world where Satan seems like he's winning and the tide doesn't seem to be running in our favor, I just, I love the old Southern gospel. So I've read the back of the book and we win. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And uh, again, I mean, a lot go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. Um, I was just going to say, do you guys all think that the 144,000 are, are Jewish believers? Like I know from the dispensational perspective, it's during the seven year tribulation and the church is gone and it's, you know, Jews that have become Christians is, is the primary view. Um, but then I have read an interesting perspective that then, this vision and then the one right after it with yeah, the, multitude the multitude of people from many tongues and tribes and nations are actually two visions uh, with complementary perspectives on the same event. Um, yeah. So then the 144,000 is, is really the true Israel, the church in Christ. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're actually not two totally separate things. And that just seems somehow, sometimes how those, um, visions are just perspectives of, of the same events from a, you know, just a different perspective is kind of changed how I read it. Yeah. I would say that's the majority opinion. I would say that's still probably the majority opinion today out, outside of the classic dispensational world. Okay. Uh, and then I would say certainly the, the majority position uh, historically. So those absolutely, that's the, it's two different ways of talking about the same group of people. And that goes back to the numbers, right? 12 times 12 times a thousand is to say the, 
the Old Testament largely, but not exclusively Jewish church. And then the New, the New Testament largely, but not exclusively Gentile church in its, in its totality. Um, and yeah, so I think, those are, I think those are two paragraphs describing the same group of people. Jesse, you were jumping in on that, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to recall. I read Morris's commentary a few years ago on Revelation, yep. and I, I remember him discussing um, seven and ten and horns. So horns represent power. Right. Okay, so we here we've got a beast rising out of the sea, which re represents the masses or the nations, yes. uh, masses of people. There's a beast rising out of the sea. He's got incredible power. He's got ten horns, and then he's got ten diadems. Uh, ten, yeah. So ten crowns. So crowns, he's got yeah. incredible authority, um, and he's and on his heads were blasphemous names. And so this this is a sort of powerful, authoritative, uh, maybe satanic leader of some sort, satanic filled leader. Maybe the devil's possessed him, or he's using him in some some sense. And he's waging war on the saints, right? Um, and he's persecuting the church. And so, it, so so we. So I would say that probably this is um, some climactic, you know, leader who's going to oppress the church one day. Okay, so you're talking about the beast from the sea, yeah, and uh, you're identifying that as uh, as as sort of an embodied um, despotic character that has a particular animus towards the body of Christ. I, I think yes, that, that would be the climactic fulfillment of that reality. I think yeah, that's that's a common viewpoint. Anyone want to grab another? We we had a few there. I thought the woman and the dragon, and this is- That's uh, one of my favorite. That's my favorite Christmas story ever. <laughs> it, it's representative of the I church, right? I appreciate that last Christmas. The, yeah. um, <laughs> she so gives awesome. birth and but like all of that is representative of the church, right? And how, or the seed of at, like the truth line. It, it's almost up. like the Bible told in a very short um, children's play. Like that's, that's almost what it looks like. It's like the, the Bible in one act and uh, mother church comes out and, and uh, she's in travail and she gives birth to the Messiah and the dragon. It's very gruesome. I actually probably wouldn't work as a primary school play, but uh, the, the dragon is kind of perched, be, you know, between her legs as it, as, it, as it were, that's the imagery. And the baby comes out and he tries to eat the baby, but the baby goes up into, into heaven and then the dragon's angry. So he goes off and makes war on the rest of her children and tries to eat them. But creation resists, uh, you know, and ultimately the people of God are vindicated and triumph, but the devil is in great fury because his time is short. Uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's like a movie. It's like a, an so it isn't the just the, the birth of Christ or is it the whole story of like um, the gospel thread throughout? I would say the life of Christ is certainly um, in there. truncated in the story, meaning it, literally he's born and then goes right yeah. up, which is, which is part of the interesting part, but meaning mother church, you know, that's how D.A. Carson, uh, that's the phrase he uses, you know, Mother Church, or and Paul used it in Galatians 4, uh, the covenant community. She gives birth to Messiah. He does what he came to do, and he ascends into heaven, and the, the devil's time is short. As soon as Jesus does his thing and goes into heaven, the devil's time is short, and he rages. And mm -hmm. so, in essence, it's a little tiny snapshot telling the church to be prepared for some venom because the dragon's not happy. He, he missed his chance. And he's gonna, you know, vent his spleen on you, but you, but you win because Jesus wins. Um, it's a, it's I've a heard that it, I've said this is a very graphic uh, explanation of Genesis three fifteen. It's it's the Bible miniature, right? In essence, you could say uh, Genesis three fifteen is often called the prot evangelion, right? Like the first giving of the gospel. Uh, you know, this this the woman seed of the woman is going to come, and uh, he's going to crush the devil's head at some cost to himself, right? 
And then that's the little storyline that that's the little gospel seed that rolls like a snowball gathering, you know, content over the course of the canon. And then in essence, you could, you could make the argument, it kind of lands on uh, right here in, in Revelation 12 and is told in apocalyptic parable. Yeah, I, I think also here we see that the devil is uh, mimicking Christ, but in his devilish uh, way. I forget how we we can talk about that, but here we've. I, I think it was actually why looks who, looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon, right, mm. right. And yeah. Jesus looks looks like a, a he sound looks like a lamb, and then he looked again, and he's he's a he's a lion. The yeah. devil prowls around like a roaring lion, you know. So, yeah, so I, we see here this mimicry. They often talk about the unholy Trinity, right? The beast yeah. from the sea. The beast, uh, the beast from the land, and and what's the oh, and the uh, the false prophet is that? Yeah, the, the prophet, the um, the three of them, and yeah. the antichrist. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so there is there is that mimicry, uh, you know, the, the devil's mimicry. Did we hit them all? I don't want to. I feel like I don't want to leave one uncovered. Did we get them all? Beast from the land. I think we did. Mark of the beast. Anyone want to take a stab at that in thirty seconds? <laughs> That's a big task, eh? In thirty seconds, uh, I would just say, actually, what what we read today, and I, and I read a day ahead, so it could be that what you'll read tomorrow, um, the first verse in, uh, I believe it's Revelation thirteen, when uh, when again it's talking about that one hundred forty four thousand talks about how they have the name of God engraved on their foreheads. I mean, it's obviously symbolic, right? So there's this, there are these two camps: the camp of the Lamb the camp of the beast and it, it seems to me that what's being said is that through particularly through history in particular through these various gyrations and upheavals but particularly through the history that immediately precedes the return of christ these various gyrations and upheaval will separate everybody into two camps they will be clearly known in their thoughts and in their deeds as either the people of the lamb or the people of the beast. There'll be no no difficulty in distinguishing them. And I think it's drawing very obviously on the imagery from Ezekiel where the, the marking angel goes out and, and mm -hmm. puts a mark on everyone who sighs and mourns over the sins of the city. And, and that's why Jesus is blessed to those who mourn, right? It is to be visibly identified in opposition to the mood of the times. Uh, that is what marks us as the people of God. All right. Well, Jesse, every week we uh, we close with a psalm. We pray out of a psalm. Uh, since you got us started with Psalm 103, would you read it for us? And, uh, and we'll pray out with it. Absolutely. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with, kind, with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Mm. 
As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thank you. All right, well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, what an encouragement that psalm is to us. Just to know that, Lord, our health, our healing, our lives, it's all in your hands, Lord. And you're a good father. You love us. Lord, there may be hardships that you sow for us. There may be dangers you make us walk through. But that's not to kill us, Lord. It is, it's, to, it's to teach us and train us. Lord, and you know our weaknesses too. You won't allow us to be crushed. You won't test us beyond what we can manage. You know that we are dust. You know our frame. You know how much weight we can bear. Uh, Lord, you know that better than us. There are times when we think, I can't get out of bed tomorrow. There's too much on me. There's too much stress. There's too much responsibility. Lord, you know how much we can bear. You know our frame. You know our frailties. You're gracious and compassionate. You're kind and you're good and you're God. And you are sovereign over it all. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for this time that we've shared together, not just tonight, but for the last several weeks. Lord, I just want to pray a blessing on everyone who's listening. Lord, who's joined us over these last several weeks. I pray that they'd stay in the word. Uh, I pray that they would uh, look to the everlasting word, that they would have their feet planted on the rock, that they wouldn't be blown about by every new bit of information and by every new rumor and fear. Lord, that they would be planted, that they would be wise, Lord. Uh, we remember that the devil used Psalm 91 to tempt the Lord into a foolish uh, display. And, and so, Lord, we don't want to be foolish but we don't want to be fearful either. Uh, so Lord, you are good. You're God. Walk us through this last mile of this strange time. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you panel. Thanks for being with us. And uh, as I said, off the top, we're going to look at different ways of reimagining and, and perhaps Lord willing relaunching this uh, later in the fall. But for now, uh, good night, my good friends. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Good night and God bless you. <laughs>